Jesus, we remember. We remember thousands of years ago, though you were the perfect lamb, the lamb without blemish, though you never committed a single sin, that you were willing to be led to the cross because of our sin, our evil, and our brokenness. And you were willing to take on the whole world, the sin of this entire world, and let it rest on you. Thank you, Jesus. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the crucified one, the lamb that was slain. Amen. This is Matthew 27, 32 through 46. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who, are, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. If he trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to start our evening, this Good Friday, looking at the passion of Jesus, uh, not from his point of view, as we're so accustomed to doing, though we'll still do that later, but from the point of view of those who had been following him, his disciples. Tonight, let's start by putting ourselves in their shoes, most following from a fearful distance, in shock as the world they had known for three years was coming crashing down. Our text tonight begins with Jesus too weak to even carry his cross. Our disciples had already watched Jesus be beaten. He was spat on, bruised, 
and even a crown of thorns was placed brutally on his head. This left their hero so weak that a man from Cyrene had to carry his cross. They bring him to a place, Golgotha, the place of the skull. This is a stone quarry near the temple that that literally looked like it had an image of a skull cut into the, the rock or cut out of the rock. It was a place of brutality. It was a morbid place. The last place you'd expect to see the end of your hero's life. Here they watched Jesus refuse the first merciful thing that the Romans even offered Jesus. It was wine mixed with myrrh. It was a medicine which, which would have dulled his senses so that he wouldn't experience the, the agony so profoundly. Their rabbi would experience the, the full the fullness of the pain of their crucifixion, of his crucifixion. And there they did crucify him, nails piercing his feet and his hands. They stripped him nude in the most embarrassing way and then cast lots for his clothing, literally rolling the dice to see who could take the clothes off of his back, adding so much insult to injury. And then the passers-by began to mock him, as he, as he lay there, or as he was hanging there. If he is the son of God, then, then why won't he save himself, they asked. I mean, it was a good question. As a disciple, you had seen him do so many miracles. You saw him heal sick people. You even saw him raise dead people. And here he is in the most helpless situation. Why isn't he saving himself? Why isn't he getting down from that cross? Everything Jesus is on the line. Don't you get it? Don't you understand what's going on? Save yourself. But he didn't. And he wouldn't. And then, brothers and sisters, it went dark. In the middle of the day, noon in fact, the sun died out completely and everything went black. The sun isn't the only thing that died out that noon hour for our disciples. The hope went dark, didn't it? Hope of the coming kingdom. Hope of this new system that Jesus talked about. Where there would be righteousness, where there would be justice, finally. Hope of the new regime with Jesus as their king. Second, their dreams went dark. The plans Jesus told them, that they would do the same things that he did and even greater things. They would do miracles. He would build with them or upon them his church. And even Hades, even the gates of Hades could not defend against it. Let alone these Roman soldiers who for the first time seemed so much more of a threat than before. And the worst thing that went dark that noon hour was the love that they had experienced from the only person who ever saw them. Whoever truly saw them, looked through the, the mask and the facade and the, the person they tried to be in front of everybody else. He saw through that and he saw something deeper in them. He saw 
their true self. And he loved them. Even though he saw it all, he loved them. And in that noon hour, that went dark. On this Good Friday, brothers and sisters, I wonder if anything has gone dark in your life. Does there seem to be unfulfilled promises? Prayers you've quit praying or quit believing would be answered? Dreams dashed by this life and all of its problems, all of its troubles and trials? Church, are there things that are dark in your life tonight? On that hill with Jesus' bloody body hanging from the tree, it was the darkest it would ever be in history. One couldn't couldn't help but wonder, would the sun ever rise again? Let's pray. Lord, these things that are dark in our lives. And God, when, when I asked that question, everybody was able to point to those things. Lord, for some, it's, it's health. For some, it's their relationships, even marriages. It's financial situations. Lord, for some, it's, it's faith crisis in this room tonight. Lord, with those things that have gone dark, we can only turn to you. Would you help us to see your purpose? And most importantly, Lord, would you help us to see your victory? And Jesus, we pray, may the sun rise again. Amen. Can we all stand and sing this together? deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his
Psalm 22, verses 1 to 18. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are the one enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. You are fa- in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned my men, by men and despised by thy people. All who seek me, all who see me, mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth... I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, opening their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of the seven statements and phrases of Jesus while he was on the cross, I imagine that perhaps, at least for his disciples, that was the most difficult statement. It was, it was the only statement that was in the form of a question. Those, those two words of why 
Why? And forsaken. I imagine the the disciples as they were listening to Jesus cry out with that why, wondering, is, is this the moment of disillusionment of Jesus? Is he doubting all this time that we walked with him, all this time that we saw him minister, he was never in doubt of the Father's plan for his life and for us. And yet now on the cross, he's saying, why, why have you forsaken me? I think that Jesus knew that though it would be a moment of disillusionment for his disciples that every generation to follow, we would look at that phrase, that question of why, and realize that Jesus was not asking that question for his own benefit, that Jesus was not asking that question out of doubt or disillusionment, but that Jesus was asking that question for you and for me. He was wanting us to realize what was taking place on the cross. And now we realize that Jesus wasn't just asking a question, he was quoting that psalm. Psalm 22, a a psalm of David. And this psalm is about the righteous sufferer. It's about David, the man after his own heart, was sustaining this vicious attack from his enemies. You you heard the, the words of David that he was taking in this attack again and again. And he was crying out to God that God would rescue him. And yet for some reason, God had not yet intervened in David's life. Again, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. He's crying out in complete confidence, trusting that God will rescue him. And yet crying out. I think that Jesus asked this question because he wants us to carry the meaning of the cross as disciples, as his followers with us, not just for a few days, not just for a weekend, not just from Friday to Sunday, but he wants us to carry the truths and the meaning and the power of the cross wherever we walk on this earth. One, he wants us to understand the meaning of what he was suffering. Yes, what Christ was suffering physically was horrendous, tremendous. You you heard it in the words and the meditations of Sean. Relationally, what he was uh, struggling with was tremendously hurtful as well. All of his closest friend, his closest companions had fled or denied, betrayed him. 
And yet the physical and the relational were not the most significant. What the most significant that this psalm teaches us was the spiritual suffering of Christ. That he was saying that he was experiencing being forsaken by the one true living God. He was experiencing being forsaken by his own father. Not only in Psalm 22, but all through the story of the Old Testament. In part, it's a story of his people, God's people, forsaking God. Turning away from him. Discrediting him, not believing in him. Turning to other gods. Sinning against one another and, and God. There's a scripture from Zechariah found in 2 Chronicles where Zechariah, the Spirit of God comes on Zechariah and it says, Zechariah, he stood before the people and said, this is what God says, why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Because you have sinned and rebelled, the Father turns from you. And Jesus says, because you have forsaken the Father, I will be forsaken for you. Brothers and sisters, our only response to that should be gratitude and worship, recognizing that we have all sinned, we have all forsaken, we have all turned away, and we are powerless to receive and turn the Father back to us, and that's why Jesus hung on the cross, forsaken by God. I think the lesson is also there for our benefit. Right after Jesus would die and he would give his last breath and say, it is finished. In the temple, the thick curtain that divided the holy of holies from the holy place, from God's manifest presence from the people, the moment that he died, that very curtain was ripped in half. It's another word, that word far that David used. Why are you so far from me? And then verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no, no one to help. Jesus was saying, I'm hanging on this cross because you have forsaken the Father and so he has forsaken you and he is now far from you. Far from you. And Jesus says, because he is far from you, I will hang on the cross. I will allow 
that distance, that separation to rest on me so that you might be drawn close. Hebrews says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. That is his body. Now his broken body is that curtain through which we enter in. He says, let us draw near to God with sincere heart. Friends, how we can carry Good Friday with us is not continual worship and gratitude, but also that we would draw near to the Father again and again, seeking more of His presence. And finally, the, those words speak to our suffering as well. Our suffering. So often I, I think we want to move past Good Friday and, and get to Easter, right? Where everything is bright and everything is joyous and everything is happy. And, and we want our lives as Christians to be victorious and, and filled with hope and conquering sin and power over the enemy and all that is good, yes? And yet in the phrase of Jesus, there's an echo of some of his other teachings. When he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So often I just, I want to leave my own cross. Can, can I be done with that cross? And Good Friday says, no. It's meant to be a part of our journey. The Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ. That's the meaning and the purpose of his life. Amen. Can we say that together? Amen. And then he also says, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. Amen. Do you want to know that? Amen. Yes. And then he says, the fellowship and participation of his suffering. That's not quite strong of an amen, is it? Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So friends, we, we do have victory. We do have moments of incredible joy. He wants that for us. And yet at the same time, how we carry Good Friday as we grieve. Not as the world does, not without hope, not without joy, but we do grieve. We do lament at this broken world, at our brokenness, at the brokenness of our friends.
It was the night that Jesus was betrayed. He knew of the betrayal. He knew of the brokenness that was to come. He knew the pain that he would have to endure. Even showing his vulnerability of crying out to the Father and sweating drops of blood. He knew all that. He knew that the bread that they were partaking and the, and the wine that they were drinking represented his very own brokenness. And yet, in great delight, he took the bread, he blessed it, gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, and he says to you and I, that this is my body. Remember, remember this. Car carry this reality with you. This is the source of your salvation. In a similar way, he took the cup. As he poured, he said, this is a new covenant, which means a new relationship, a new closeness to the Father. No longer forsaken. He said, take this new covenant, which is my blood. It's for you. Friends, we have four stations in the four corners here. It's a, it's a time of self-serving. So as we listen, as we worship, as we pray, when you feel led, would you go to a station and take the elements and remember Jesus' broken body and his shed blood.
Psalm 22, 19 through 31. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. 
but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise. In the great assembly before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts endure forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down in the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. John Lennox, the brilliant author and professor of mathematics at Oxford University, tells a story about touring Eastern Europe and meeting a Jewish woman from South Africa. The woman told Lennox that she was researching how her relatives had perished in the Holocaust. At one point on the guided tour, they passed a display that had the following words written on it. Arbeit macht frei. Work makes free. It was a mock-up of the main gate to the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. Is that not also the promise of this world? The promise of empty religion? The promise of the American dream? That if you simply work hard enough, if you put in enough effort, you will be all right. You will have enough. Your suffering will disappear and you'll be okay. Work makes free was the great lie used on the Jews as they entered the concentration camps. And it's a great lie used to direct you to your own efforts at fulfillment. And it fails every single time. The display also had pictures of the horrific medical experiments carried out on children by the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele. At that point of their tour, the Jewish women turned to Lennox and said, and what does your religion make of this? Lennox writes, what was I to say? She had lost her parents and many relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the Mengele photographs because of the sheer horror of imagining my children suffering such a fate. I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror her family had endured. But still, she stood in the doorway, waiting for an answer. I eventually said, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What is more, I have young children, and I cannot even bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them even if it were far short of the evil that Mengele did. I have no easy answers. But I do have what, for me at least, is a doorway into an answer. And she asks, what is it? Linus continues, you know that I am a Christian, 
That means that I believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate. Come into our world as Savior, which is what the name Yeshua means. Now I know that this is even more difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. And I'm asking you to think about this question. If Yeshua was really God, as I believe he was, what was God doing on a cross? Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering, but became part of it himself? For me, this is the beginning of hope, and it is a living hope that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead, and one day, as a final judge, he will assess everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. And there was silence. She was still standing, arms outstretched, forming a motionless cross in the doorway. After a moment, with tears in her eyes, very quietly but audibly, she said, Why has no one ever told me about my Messiah before? You don't have to be a Christian to understand this story. You don't have to be really religious to enter into the drama. You have to be alive. You have to be human. And you will intuitively know that this is your story. Life is filled with moments of great joy. But it's also pregnant with suffering, with longing, with disappointment. When we think of Good Friday, of Easter... Most of our thinking goes to the atoning work of Jesus. That is, what the cross accomplishes for us with regard to sin. That's good. That's where our minds should go. Jesus takes our place on a cross that was meant for us. But, but, that's not the only thing that happens on the cross. At Calvary, the place of suffering, we see a man the human man, Jesus, in his full humanity, suffering, bleeding, questioning, searching for reprieve from God, longing for intimacy with God to be restored. It's what Lennox pointed to when he asked, what if the cross is meant to show God is co-joined with us in brokenness? The writer of our psalm knew that well. He says in verse 24, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Just as the psalm is true for Jesus, it's true for you. It's true for all of us. When you are at your lowest, when you've reached the end of your rope, and the darkness surrounds and overwhelms you, where do you turn? Do you reach for a self-help book? There are many. Some are really good. Do you turn to your favorite addiction, to food, to sex, to alcohol, to work? Do you try to hide from God and put on a pretty religious face? I'm fine, God. I've got this. Does any of it actually ever work? What if you turn to Jesus, the murdered Messiah, the suffering Savior, the martyred man. Jesus died for your sins. Yes, no question. But he also entered into your mess. 
He's covered in it. He knows it intimately because he's experienced his own. Now, I have a person in my family, someone who is dear and precious to me, who suffers with depression, as many of us do. She has said to me that in her lowest moments, moments when she can't fathom even getting out of bed, when her ability to even pray or read scripture has faded, she can utter one word, one prayer, Jesus. She can say that prayer because her connection to and relationship with God goes beyond doctrine and empty religion. She knows a Jesus who is imminent, who is close, who identifies with broken people. She knows the Jesus of Good Friday who suffers alongside her. His invitation is an invitation from death to life. When the Bible scholar N.T. Wright was asked what he would tell his children on his deathbed, he said, look at Jesus. Wright goes on to explain why. The person who walks out of the pages of the Gospels to meet us is just central and irreplaceable. He is always a surprise. We never have Jesus in our pockets. He is always coming at us from different angles. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to love, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as a central character. Good Friday is a time of reflection, of remembering the crucifixion of Jesus, but it's also an invitation to life. The psalmist captures it in verse 26. The poor, the poor in spirit, the poor in resources, the poor in power, the poor. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. That is the promise of Good Friday. That if we focus on the person of Jesus, our hearts will indeed be restored and live forever. What if the sun does rise, as Sean asked us? What if light really does overwhelm the darkness of Good Friday? What if the Son of Man really does rise? If Good Friday is it, if this is how the story ends, if God is impotent against death, we're all fools for being here. We have no hope. We have been deceived. But we know that we have a God who is close, who is not a stranger to suffering, who is near to the brokenhearted, and that there is a promise of a Sunday to come. If after this service, one of you comes up to me and says, I never want to see you again. I never want to hear your voice. I will feel pretty bad. But if tonight my wife or one of my sons or my best friend comes up to me and says, I never want to see you again, Josh, I would be devastated. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment of its loss. Dr. Tim Keller writes, but the forsakenness experienced by Christ at the cross, the relational loss was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other from all eternity. Jesus was experiencing judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It was not a rhetorical question. And the answer is, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for me, for all of us. Jesus was forsaken by God, so we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. And the loneliness that was ours alone to bear before the love of God pierced our world is now shared with Jesus. In his suffering is our healing and restoration. On the cross, Jesus defeated death as only God can do. Equally important to our human condition and experience, on the cross, Jesus joined us in our suffering. His ears are tuned to the sound of your voice. Every cry you make, every question you have, every bit of doubt, everything that makes you a human, all of it matters to him. We call this day Good Friday. It is good because it's the day where the confluence of heaven and earth, sin and grace, suffering and relief, death and life explode. It's all answered here when God comes to earth, submits himself to death. And it's good because the decay of Good Friday is not the end of the story. We can mourn today, but we can also be comforted and even rejoice, even before the resurrection, because life truly does emerge from Christ's death. Amen and amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Please stand and join with us as we sing.